Hey everybody, welcome to Skeleton Keys. I'm Tori Aitzor. And I'm John Booker. And together we're going to try to unlock the mysteries of mythology and history in pop culture. You know, Tori, we don't always live up to the mysteries of mythology, but in today's episode, we are going to live up to the mysteries of mythology. The deep mysteries, the deep space mysteries, if you will. Yes, yes. Today, we're diving deep into a topic that it sort of splits audiences right down the middle. People either love it or hate it. And I think the audience will be fairly clear where we come down on it uh, by the end of the episode, as well as where our guest comes down on it. I, I don't think there's going to be any room for ambiguity when it comes to how we feel about this particular topic. But I, I guess we just have to throw it out there. We're talking about ancient aliens today. Yep. And do you remember how you became introduced to this show? I remember when it first came out thinking, where are the history shows on History Channel? Because <laughs> I didn't understand what, why all the Egyptology shows were gone. Yeah. So I watched an episode and I, as, as a historian, yeah. had some thoughts. <laughs> I bet you did. <laughs> I bet Concerns. you did. Yes. I think. Somebody that I respect a great deal said, hey, have you ever watched Ancient Aliens? And I was like, Ugh, no. And he said, well, you totally should. It's fascinating. And I said, oh, well, I, I respect this person's opinion a lot. And I watched the show and my opinion of Ancient Aliens did not change, but my opinion of of the recommender <laughs> greatly <laughs> changed. <laughs> Um, and it was funny because a day or two later, my brother, who's also a historian, I mentioned to him, oh, I checked out that show Ancient Aliens. And he gave me this look like, <laughs> like I had just told him, you know, that I had like murdered children or something. <laughs> he, he looked at me like he had never been more disappointed in me in his whole life. And I, I started to get a picture of how strongly people feel about this show. It's it's one of those things. I had something similar happen to me too, where I was doing a shoot for something completely different than history, and I, somebody found out that I was a historian. He goes, "Oh, so you must love ancient aliens." <laughs> and I swear, I heard like the Kill Bill sirens <laughs> go off in my head, like, <laughs> and I was like, "No." <laughs> I tried to be as diplomatic as possible. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. But I, un, you know what? I get it. Yeah. I understand the appeal. Yeah. So I can't, I try not to be as judgmental as I want to be because I understand it. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, and this is part of what we're going to get in here, you know, get into today is this in a way is a very complex topic because there is this innate desire in human beings to Explore the curiosity, is there something beyond us? Is there a, a world or a, a collection of people somewhere out there that we don't know about? And, you know, this is something that humankind has been interested in and grasping at since the beginning. And I think it goes back to this psychological idea of otherness, which is a big deal 
in mythology. This, of course, originates like when we are little bitty babies and we, we don't fully recognize that the world and, and mom and all these you know, things we're engaging and encountering are separate from us. Mm. But at some point, as babies, we begin to recognize there's me and then there's the other. There are other people. There are, uh, there's, you know, things that react when I manipulate them in some way. And so it's like one of our oldest genetic impulses is this recognition of otherness. However, that recognition gets arrested in so many people that we become fixated on the otherness mm-hmm. and, and we become we become absolutely uh, frightened of otherness. Anything that's different, anything that is outside of what we are, are used to or uh, what we experience. And of course, this leads to racism and xenophobia and, and sexism and all sorts of other, you know, psychological human conditions. But I think it all goes back to otherness. What do you think? I 100% agree with that. I think it's one of those things where otherness is something that we're scared of, but that we're attracted to. Yeah. Yeah. That we're intrigued by because it's not us. We don't understand it. There's something elevated mm-hmm. in a way about otherness because it, you, I mean, you can even put it down to in terms of racialness, you know, cultural appropriation yeah. of that's different, but I, I want to have a piece of that. I want to be a part of that. Yeah. And so I think the popularity of a show like Ancient Aliens makes perfect sense to me because what is more other than an extraterrestrial? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. What I mean, you know, we always seem to come back to as human beings our united recognition that, hey, we're all human, right? Mm-hmm. But what if we're not all human? What if what if there's an other outside of, of human? And, you know, we we recognize that some things outside of humanity are, are great, like animals. I mean, Rarely do you meet somebody that says, I hate animals, right? I mean, yeah, because you're like, all animals? Right, <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, that that just seems like a, a psycho, you know, who would say that. But we, we absolutely have some very mixed feelings about the possibilities of extraterrestrial life. Mm-hmm. You know, so, some of us are afraid of that. Some of us totally believe it exists. Some of us believe that the the government is hiding it, you know, and covering it up. And some of us um, don't believe in it at all. Yeah. And I, I think the point of whether or not aliens exist it's sort of beside the point in this whole discussion. I mean, for me personally, all I can say is I've seen no credible evidence of such. You know, it doesn't mean that uh, that we won't someday discover something. But as of this point, personally, I've seen no credible evidence. How about you, Tori? Have you been visited by an alien? Uh, sadly, no. Sadly, um, no. I, I have not had that pleasure <laughs> or pain. I'm not sure which one they would do. You know, I, I'm kind of of the ilk of like, there's a lot of planets and a lot of galaxies yeah. and a lot of stars. Yeah. The law of averages says we're probably not the only yeah. living people out there. But I'm like you in that I have not seen proof of it. Yeah. Even yeah. within ancient 
history, I have not seen proof of aliens. Yeah. So yeah, I'm 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 open to being wrong, but I that's how I feel. About it. <laughs> well, I I feel like you know we can we can trace this discussion of otherness back a long way. And we, while we could probably even go further than this, I think one place mythologically that we can trace this discussion is, is back to uh, Plato's symposium. And in the symposium, Plato, you know, has, has this character, Aristophanes, who's this, this famous Greek theater and comedy writer. And, and Eric, Aristophanes tells the story of soulmates. And Aristophanes tells this story that basically in the beginning, there were three genders in nature. There were man, woman, and the androgynous. And, and that literally means man, woman in Greek. And what it was is every person was actually two people. So you had one type of person that were two men that were attached together. You had another type of person that were two women attached together. And then you had a third type of person that was a man and a woman attached together. Now, each gender had two sets of genitalia with the androgynous having both the male and female sex. And, you know, the, the gender of humans had to do with their origin. So the men were the children of the sun and the women were the children of the earth. And the androgynous were the children of the moon born out of the this merging of of sun and earth and I, I think you know we we hear that and say that is crazy you know that certainly doesn't account for all gender identities or that doesn't uh, account for all expressions of 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 sexuality and you know Whenever we talk about history, we, we have to acknowledge that. And we have to point out, you know, that these the, these ideas that we currently, you know, have have been fortunate enough to develop around identity and uh, around gender and, and sexuality. In many ways, these are new ideas. They're not new experiences mm -hmm. for people, but they're they they're newly articulated, shall we say. Perfectly said. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, at, at this time in the story that Aristophanes tells, these these humans were very, very powerful creatures and they were were fearless and they were they're very strong and the gods became very threatened by them. And the gods were afraid that these humans that were so strong were going to overthrow the gods and that they were going to uh, set up a new uh, species of gods, these new gods. And so Zeus, being the solution-minded god that he was, he comes up with this other solution. And his solution was, hey, let's split humans in half and punish them because, uh, you know, they, they're so prideful and they're so full of hubris. Let's just punish them for who they are. And so um, Apollo, who's the god of music and truth and prophecy and healing and light, uh, he couldn't bear to see humans like this split apart like this. So to ease their pain, he he sews them back up and he reconstitutes their bodily forms and he just leaves the navel as the only reminder of their original form. So, yeah. So humans go from these these two-faced, two-sexed creatures with eight limbs to uh, these these creatures that are are single-faced with, you know, a single set of genitalia and two arms and two legs and Forever, human beings then are on a search for their other half, for their soulmate. They're looking for that, that 
person who's the, 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 was the part of me that I was separated from, the not part of me. And that not part of me, you know, throughout history has, has often caused us great fear and insecurity. Mm-hmm. And aliens, I think, originate from that, that fear. But, you know, mythologically, that's sort of where we have the basis of this idea of otherness is, oh, there's someone who's not me, but if I can find them, Mm. and make them part of my life, I'll be complete. Yeah, I'll be more powerful. I'll be, yeah. Like you were saying, when the humans were, before they were split, powerful, terrifying, you know, could challenge the gods. Yeah. And so if you find that other half or that other, you can reach that power. You can reach the godlike feeling of being one of the new gods. Yeah. It's it's sort of a beautiful story too. Yeah, about, it really, it's very romantic. It's very romantic. We're we're all in search for you know that that uh, that completion. And in some ways, it was very progressive for the time because you know if you were a man who was split from another man, you're searching for that man who is mm-hmm. is going to complete you. You know, in in the same thing with women or, or heterosexual couples. Um, well, it didn't include all gender or sexual expressions or identities. It was pretty progressive for the time to uh, to yeah. include gay and lesbian themes, you know, in the um, uh, story that was being told. I have been waiting to get to this point in the episode since we began. So we, we've got to jump right in to our first segment, which is something we always do on this podcast. It, it is, it's called Skeleton Keys, and we bring a skeleton from our closet. Tori, I'm going to bring one of my oldest stories out of the closet. And and because we're talking about aliens, this is a story about aliens. Now, I wish I had a story, you know, to to share with you about the time, you know, aliens came and took me up in their ship and used me for human experiments. Or I just don't have one (laughs) of those stories. I don't. Next time. Next time. But I did have a meaningful relationship with an alien when I was a child, and that alien was named E.T., the extraterrestrial. Tori, I fell in love with this movie. I fell in love with E.T., and I actually went and saw E.T. in the theaters more more than five times. Oh, that's so that's so sweet. Well, it's sweet. Here's what's even sweeter. <laughs> Tori, you may recall E.T. had this this candy that he loved called Reese's Pieces. Yeah, and he was very fond of those. Very fond of them. And, you know, a little bit of side trivia. Originally, the Mars Corporation was approached, and it, originally it was supposed to be M&M's in the movie. And the M&M Corporation is like, no, nah, we don't want to really associate our brand with some weird alien movie or whatever. <laughs> but, you know, the sales of Reese's Pieces after they were featured in this movie, you know, like 10 times the year before. So, haha, M&M's on you. Sorry. Sorry. But here's the thing. I saw this movie. I saw E.T. eating the Reese's Pieces. Tori, every time I went and saw E.T. and every time I would go to the store to buy candy, I would buy and eat Reese's Pieces. And here's the thing. I didn't even like Reese's Pieces. (laughs) I just so badly wanted to eat E.T.'s food that I I just ate Reese's Pieces because that's what E.T. ate. Did you want to be E.T. or did you want to be his friend? Well, 
therein lies the the, the crux of this complex uh, issue. I, I didn't see a way. I mean, E.T. was kind of gross to me. He had this gotcha. squatty little body and these yeah. feet. and But there was also something I kind of related to that was like, oh, you know, he's... He's, he feels like Quasimoto, and I felt like Quasimoto. So I, I kind of related to that. But mm-hmm. I sure would have loved to have been Elliot and befriend E.T. And so, you know, maybe if I would eat E.T.'s food, it would be an invitation, you know, to any aliens who happen to be in the East Texas region to come and hang out with me. Uh, never happened, but I, to this day... I love every other Reese's product, but not a fan of Reese's Pieces. And it's probably because I ate them so much as a child when I didn't want to, just trying to to be like E.T., eat his food. How how long did that passage of eating Reese's Pieces last? Oh, certainly not more than 10 or 15 years, uh, for sure. I'm <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. No. Um, but it was, it, was, uh, it, it was probably a solid two years of my life that were spent eating you know, Reese's Pieces. When I was a kid, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, you know, we didn't go to the movies that often. So to, mm-hmm. although it sounds like we did because I saw E.T. five times, but I mean, I mean, you know, we probably would only see, you know, a couple of movies a year in the theater. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the thing. My father managed a movie theater when I was this at this young age, and he had a deal with the other movie theater owner in town that we could go see movies at their theater. And so we would often go see movies multiple times because we could see them, you know, for free. Oh, awesome. We didn't see a wide scope and variety of movies in the theater. We would often see the same movies over and over again, and thus I saw E.T. like five times. But... That is my skeleton key for this episode. E.T. Reese's Pieces, Skeleton in the Closet. Well, my skeleton key is also because of my connection to a famous movie alien, but it's about my crush on a famous movie alien, specifically Predator from Predator. (laughs) I was just, listen... I legitimately had a crush on the Predator. <laughs> I think <laughs> tales of interspecies love are 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 not as uncommon as you would think, uh, Tori. It, it turns out many people love aliens. That makes me feel better because I well, every time people would bring up aliens, for some reason it would become like like sexual about like a hot alien. <laughs> so I felt vindicated and that I had a weird crush on the predator, but it was just something about his dreads. Tori, you <laughs> can like, love aliens, but don't love aliens. I love the predator and like the way he could, <laughs> I'm, I'm moving so you can't see it because it's audio, but like he would move really fast. And I just thought that was really hot. <laughs> I, I still do. It. I love it. Not when he takes the mask yeah, off. Yeah. No. I want to preface that. Like, yeah. It's the only essence with the mask on. Predator. But like, I like to say, like, when 13 year old Tori was really into AJ from the Backstreet Boys <laughs> and Predator from Predator. <laughs> you know, if AJ from Backstreet Boys had somehow been able to grow dreadlocks, you might That's have. That's my dream, man. Yeah. It's, a, it's like your dream guy. Yeah. Oh wow! Wow. So did yeah. you did you ever share this uh, this obsession with anyone? Did you go out on a limb and you know share your feelings? You know, 
Um, I was smart enough not to do that yeah. as a teen. As an adult, I told some friends and then it became like they, they didn't thought I was joking. I was like, no, I legitimately had a crush on the predator. <laughs> and so I would, I have a friend, Chelsea, who went to New York, you know, in Times Square, yeah. people will dress up. Yeah. Predator was dressed up in New York when she was there. And so she FaceTimed <laughs> me and was like, I'm with your husband. <laughs> he was very confused. <laughs> So, guys out there listening to the podcast, if you happen to bear a striking resemblance to the Predator, Tori Yates Orr is is accepting uh, applications uh, via our email address for, you know, future Predator-like mates. So, please, yeah, yeah contact us. I'm available. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> wow. I, you know... I never know what kind of story you're going to share, but let me tell you, didn't see that one coming. That's, that is amazing. That is, wow. Well, let's, let's move forward. Please. Uh, let's, let's move away from interspecies love and, and move towards uh, our, our next segment. I, we always, you know, like to talk a bit about the archetypes, you know, that a, a particular mythological motif or a particular, you know, topic that we're, we're talking about embodies. And we, we've spoken briefly about this, you know, psychological motif of the other. And there's this further psychological idea about othering people. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's one thing to recognize that we are that something is different than us. I am not a tree. And it's it's a different thing to recognize that someone is different than us. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the, the problem is obviously when this leads to uh, racism, homophobia, xenophobia, uh, sexism, you know, obviously this is this is very problematic. However, I think it's also equally problematic, and I'm really curious to hear your take on this. I think it's equally problematic when people deny the other, like when people say, oh, I don't see race. We're all just one human race. We're all just one, you know, big pile of humanity or whatever. Yeah. I, I think the denial of othering is a problem. What, what do you think? I'm not a fan of that. Yeah. I'm not a fan of saying I don't see race or we're all the same color, human. Mm-hmm. That it, to me feels like you don't see me. Yeah. You don't see my experiences and vice versa. Yeah. I think it's it's impossible not to see race. Right. It's impossible. Right. Uh so for someone to say that is it's kind of lying yeah. because that's just not a that's not the way our world functions. Right. Now, I'm not just my race, but I, that is a big part of me. Yeah. And that is a big part of my culture and where I come from. And that's going to color my experiences, which is also going to color your experiences. Yeah. Your experiences can be different because where you grew up. Yeah. So I think to just say blanketly, I don't see race is a problem as much as only seeing the divisions that we have within us is yeah. a problem. Yeah. There's a way to incorporate the whole and our separate, beautiful differences as well. Yeah. Well, I I think talking about race is a perfect transition into going Mm -hmm. back into ancient aliens because... Oh, Lord. Yeah. Tori, if you had to like narrow it down and say, here's why I don't like ancient aliens in a simple encapsulated version, (laughs) what... what, uh, 
What what would you say? Why why? All right, all right. <laughs> okay. I'm not going to just dunk on it. Okay. I want to, but I'm not going to. All right. Ancient Aliens is incredibly problematic. One, because it's based in little to no actual fact. Historians, archaeologists, you know, scientists train their whole lives to learn about these things. They're not asked for their opinion for these shows, interestingly enough. Also, a big push about why people don't like Ancient Aliens is because it's incredibly, it has a lot of racist undertones. It's very much... How could these ancient, predominantly ancient cultures that included brown and black people, you don't see them. They're touching into other ancient cultures that were white. Um, that's because they're 14, 15 seasons in. Yeah. They got to start doing that. But primarily, they basically started looking at ancient Egypt, ancient uh, Maya culture, brown and black cultures saying there's no way they could have created these cultures without the help of aliens. This goes back to Chariots of the Gods, which is kind of like the Bible of the ancient alien theory that also has racist overtones within the book. And so a lot of people, I mean, obviously people who are from a factual background don't <laughs> like the show, but also understanding that there is kind of this racial undertone underneath it of like, there's no way they possibly, these brown and black people couldn't have possibly done this without the help of these aliens. How did they create it? <laughs> right. I mean, but and if you watch it and you no. look for that, you see oh, it. It's, it's funny because I had never even heard this, this observation about the show mm -hmm. before I watched it. And the first time I ever watched it, I was like, this feels super racist to me <laughs> that, you know, it's like, well, if we European white people didn't uh, didn't figure out, uh, you know, how to do it at this time, certainly these brown people could. Uh, it had to be aliens. Had to be it aliens. Had to have. <laughs> these pyramids, how do they build them? There's no way that it possibly that's just the easiest way to stack rocks. You know, and I'm I'm embarrassed to say that, you know, the aliens card is one that white people continue to play uh, when there's things we don't understand. <laughs> um, I, I'm embarrassed to say that the alien card has not been removed from the Caucasian deck uh, as of yet, because, you know, uh, there's 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 quite a lot uh, of of. People go to YouTube. You can you can find all sorts of people telling you about the aliens that they've encountered. I, I do think, you know, one thing I, I do want to acknowledge from a psychological perspective that I do think is interesting is that depending on what is going on in your world, in your life, mm -hmm. there is a great deal of psychological evidence that people tend to quote unquote see things that are not there. For example, where I live in Los Angeles, there are tons of reports of people seeing these particular monsters right around and after the time of the Great Depression. And there's newspaper articles that uh, I got really fascinated by this for a while. This is cool. It, it is, yeah. It, and again, a lot of psychologists have done work where they look into these things and say there are certain psychological conditions that can be set up for people where we are needing a certain expression of something. And when someone says, I saw this with my own mm. eyes... They're not lying. They 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 really did experience, you know, this this thing. 
Now, that doesn't mean the thing was actually there. You know, a, a psychological experience can be very, very real to the person that has it, uh, but it doesn't mean that, you know, our our boundaries of reality are not accurate. But this is a real thing. At different times throughout history, when certain conditions, especially very difficult conditions, mm -hmm. that we don't understand why something is happening, there seems to be an uptick in these creations of the human psyche that, that people claim to have seen. And so I, I want to, you know, acknowledge that and say that everyone who claims to have seen an alien, you know, may not just be lying about it or may not just yeah. be, you know, a, a mentally unbalanced person. It could be something that is created in their psyche due to the conditions and their environment that they're surrounded by. And again, there's there's a number of documented cases of, of people seeing even very similar creatures mm -hmm. in uh, Latin American culture. There's there's a, a creature uh, called the chupacabra that is this this you know creature that there's no evidence that actually exists, but is claimed to you know have been seen by a multitude of people. And there's been psychologists that have looked at that and said, wow it's really interesting that this particular creature seems to only be encountered in Latin American cultures. So is there something particular to Latin American culture that lends itself to chupacabra sightings, mm. you know? And I'm not saying it is or it isn't. I'm just saying these are some of the discussions, you know, that uh, that tend to um, happen among psychologists when it comes to aliens and creatures out there. I think that's important to, like I said, I, I'm not even dunking on people who do experience that because I don't know what they experience. Yeah. Even when I like I was reading about alien abductions, I would never tell someone what you experience is wrong because I wasn't there. Yeah. I don't know their experience. And I think that's really important to understand of like the personal experience, what was going on, these phenomenon are important to um, examine. Yeah. I think what ancient aliens does is play on all of our interest in that and all of our want of the supernatural and that kind of wondering, well, what could it be? Yeah. And turns it into a show that claims to be about historical significance. Right. Right. And I think that's where people kind of, you're kind of putting those two together and they shouldn't necessarily be together. They're both valid, yeah. but maybe not together. Well, and our guest today would be I would say one of the people at the forefront of this movement of of uh, being deeply bothered by the show Ancient Aliens, wouldn't you? Yeah, I maybe like the Grand Marshal. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Which I I love to hear him talk about this. I love following him on Twitter, and I love really smart people that engage ideas like this seriously, you know, that mm -hmm. is, are not just about insulting those that believe, you know, in these yeah. things, but that that deeply engage them seriously. And our guest today, Dr. David S. Anderson, is someone who does that. He has a PhD in archaeology from Tulane, which is no small accomplishment. Not at all. Yeah, he studies uh, Mesoamerica, and he also studies pseudo-archaeology, which makes him a perfect voice for speaking to this issue. And 
while it certainly uh, is one only one aspect of his work, he is a man with a passion for seeing ancient aliens canceled. I saw even recently on Twitter, you know, he he before it is canceled would like them to actually do a whole show of of apologies and setting the record straight about these things. So he doesn't want it to just go off the air before they repent of their sins. But you are in for a treat today as our guest on Skeleton Keys is Dr. David S. Anderson. Dr. David S. Anderson, welcome to Skeleton Keys. Thank you for having me. It's a thrill to be here. We are really excited to have you because you are someone whose work has really... um, It seems to me like maybe you got bored with standard archaeology and academia and said, let me go find the outer realms of what is really interesting and let me, uh, you know, explore that, which is wonderful because you're someone whose work has not only focused around, uh, you know, the the Maya culture and Maya mythology and Maya archaeology, but someone who has delved into pseudoscience. So how in the world did you uh, become interested in pseudoscience and what sparked this, uh, this flame inside you? You know, it's it's a, been a full circle, if you will, because I became interested in archaeology and started studying archaeology when I was in school because I picked up a book that now I would consider to be pseudo-archaeology and pseudo-scientific. You know, I was 18 years old. I was going off to college. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I was enrolled as a business major. Uh, which is great for some people, but was really not where I needed to go. And I picked up a book by uh, a man named Graham Hancock, uh, Fingerprints of the Gods, which was all about how archaeologists had sort of overlooked or not realized that there was this sort of a fantastical lost civilization from about 12, 13,000 years ago. And I was hooked. I mean, he talked all about how the professional archaeologists were sort of covering up the truth or weren't really acknowledging or understanding what was right before their nose. And, you know, when I read that book, I was like, yeah, this is, you know, really amazing. You know, there's a couple of things that seemed out of, you know, too, too far stretched for me, but I, you know, I was like, this is, this is it. Like, I gotta go to archaeology. I gotta overturn this like high bound, narrow minded academy. And then I started learning, you know, reading archaeology books and talking to archaeologists. And it was like, wait, wait a second. Like everything he's putting out here is just fundamentally problematic, if not outright wrong. And, you know, it's, um, it, this you know, pushed me and I, and I loved it. I loved archaeology, you know, and I, and as I got more and more into it and it, uh, when I was, Finishing up my PhD and starting to sort of look, well, what do I do now? Yeah, I get, you're, you're right, John. I was, I was a little bit like, well, I mean, I, I guess this, I can keep doing, you know, normal archaeology, and, I, and I've done plenty of that, and I still do plenty of that. But I felt like there was a real gap where my profession wasn't talking about things like lost civilizations and ancient aliens. But every time I met somebody on the street or at a party or at a bar, that's what they asked me about. It's like this stuff, we need to deal with this stuff. We need to engage with it somehow. I, I should you know, give credit to my forebears. I'm not the first person to actually start talking about this. There's by a long shot, there are several people who came who have been working on this for years, but it has always been a very small number of people. 
Well, like you were saying, you're not the first, but you're probably one of the most vocal in kind of talking about the problematic nature of shows like Ancient Aliens and talking about lost civilizations. Can you just say why these programs are so problematic right now? Yeah, especially in the moment. So much of pseudo-archaeological claims are race-based. It's not on the surface, and sometimes I don't think even I think even the people who support them today don't always recognize or realize what they're doing. So shows like Ancient Aliens, Ancient Aliens in particular, is really problematic this way. I mean, the basic premise of the show and the books that it was based upon are that you know many people in the ancient world they couldn't possibly have built those pyramids, they couldn't possibly have cut stone in straight lines or something like this without some help. And the reality is, is that the vast majority of cultures they talk about are people of color, indigenous populations outside of Europe in one way or another. Yes, they did an episode about the Vikings. Yes, they did, you know, like they, they like one or two Roman sites, but the vast majority of our, uh, things they talk about are from Africa or Native America outside of Europe. And a lot of what they're doing is piggybacking on old 19th century racial beliefs that there were, in essence, lost white tribes all over the world that were actually responsible for the mounds of North America or Great Zimbabwe in Africa. Yeah, this is they're repeating the exact same stories that were happening in the 19th century and the early 20th century that said these things couldn't have been built by people of color. It had to have been lost white tribes. Ancient Aliens is repeating the exact same script, but with grays. That is succinctly put and so, so problematic and disappointing because, you know, these are uh, shows coming out on platforms which are supposedly based around offering authentic history and mythology. <laughs> yeah. No, and TV in general, in, in, in my experience with TV shows is anecdotal. And so, you know, that, that is what it is. I've, I've interviewed to be on a few shows. I've tried to pitch my own show to people. And there's, I have lots of colleagues who have been interviewed for shows who ended up not using what they said because it didn't fit the narrative that the producers already wanted. I was interviewed for a show about a lost city in South America. And I actually explained to the producer, it was a very interesting interview because the, the producers at the end of the interview basically said to me like, well, you know more about this, this than anyone we've talked to. And there's this like very clear subtext. We're not having you on the show. Uh, as you know, I walked them through <laughs> how like they were trying to follow this man, Percy Fawcett, who was a British explorer in the 1920s who was lost in the Amazon looking for what he called the city of Z. Fawcett, in Fawcett's uh, memoirs, and his, he was very explicit that this was a city built by a lost white race. He even has a native Amazonian at one point tell him like, yes, my ancestors built cities in the Amazon. And Fawcett wrote down in his memoir, like, this guy's not telling me the truth because you know he is of the brown-skinned variety. It has to have been a white-skinned person who have made this city. And I explained this to the people making this show who were trying to follow in Fawcett's footsteps. And they're like, oh, well, but we don't want to make a show about race. I'm like, you are making a show about race. Like, you know, it's you can ignore it <laughs> if you want to, but it's it is like it is not like in the background, it is critical and forefront in Fawcett's claims. And but that stuff doesn't make for reassuring basic cable TV shows that people want to watch. Well, the 
part B to my question there then would be, I'm reminded of um, uh, Wade Davis's book, The Wayfinders. Uh, he talks about, uh, he's the, the head adventurer for National okay. Geographic, I think is his uh, title. But he talks about uh, a bit of the history, especially in that part of the, the world, of how many different people claimed accounts of uh, encountering Amazon women, the, these very violent, vicious, huge, you know, band, uh, tall women that, uh, you know, would chase them out of certain areas. And basically, that's become almost a uh, measuring stick for how accurate we believe the accounts of these different, you know, adventures to be. Why why is is history and archaeology so consistently flooded with with uh tales of hokum for lack of a better term? You know, it's there are many reasons. And so we, you know, we've got a few hours here, right? <laughs> the <laughs> the past is powerful. You know, there's there's this definite tendency, I think, you know, people are like, oh, you do archaeology or you're a historian, like, well, you know, I guess your job's done. Nothing's ever going to change. Or, you know, it's past is extremely and extraordinarily powerful uh, in the way that people use it to justify political regimes or beliefs about certain cultures or certain races. And in the past, it's constantly invoked in the present. Actually, one of my favorite ways of just, I have a collection of photographs in my, in my archives of just all the different units of money, bills and coins from around the world that people have put archaeological sites or ancient monuments on. It's like people are constantly picking up images from the past and shoving them into our face to justify the current nature of the world. And when the past is that powerful and ever present, people are going to manipulate it. They're going to manipulate it whenever they can. And so I think that's something I tell my students in the classroom, like when we start getting into the nitty gritty about certain you know, historical issues or ancient cultures, it's like there is a way where these details are esoteric. You don't necessarily need to know what a, you know, a Maya house looked like from 500 BC. But the reality is if you don't know your facts and if you don't know the outline of human history and what that outline is based on, people will abuse your lack of knowledge and they will manipulate you as a result. And so there's so many, yeah, there are so many layers here, but I think the, you know, the most important thing is that the past is used by politicians all the time. And so they will bend it to their will whenever necessary. And kind of piggybacking off of that, of why this is, you know, so important. It's a popular show. It's a really yeah. popular mm -hmm. show and history has kind of doubled down on it. Now we have, I think, Alien Con. Why do you think they're, I mean, why do you think this has become what they're synonymous with? Why do you think it's so popular? Not even just from politicians, but from the public of being like <laughs> aliens, more so than actually learning about the actual facts who did, of the people who actually did these things. Presumption, I think, for a lot of people that's rooted in a hundred years of, of writing fiction and comic books and other things that, we, that I'm interested in that that the ancient world is a blank slate. You know, they, they didn't have writing or they had writing that's hard for us to understand and interpret. And so there's sort of this long-standing history of people as a result painting what they want to see on the ancient world. And you know, this is, you know, I think a certain extent a fault or an issue of archaeologists. We need to tell people 
It's like on a math problem. You know, the teacher asks you to show your work. Don't just give me the answer. Show, you know, how did you get that answer? And I think archaeologists need to do a better job of we're not making stuff up. Like when we try to explain what is the outline of history, like people have accused me many times. I'm like, well, archaeologists just change dates on things whenever it suits them. It's like, no, we have a lot of very detailed dating methods that are reinforced not by just, you know, radiocarbon dating, yes, there are real problems with radiocarbon dating, and it doesn't always work, and it has error ranges. But we never use radiocarbon dating alone. It's always in context with uh, different types of seriation and stratigraphic dating and you know, a whole bunch of other techniques. And I think we need to do a better job of showing our work and you know, showing how we know what we know about the past. And But it skirts around your question, Tori, and it's like, why do people want to watch Ancient Aliens? You know, I think it just, it presents this sort of fantastical vision of like, what if? And, you know, I think it even speaks to how I got into archaeology. I mean, I got drawn into this by these tales of lost civilizations. And it's, you know, something I think a lot of people will say to me and my colleagues, like, oh, well, you, you represent the status quo. And you can't let that status quo go or you'll lose your job or you won't be able to, you know, career that we're part of big archaeology uh, in some ways, shape or form. It's like if I could prove that there was ancient alien contact, if I could prove that there was a civilization 12,000, 13,000 years ago, I would totally do it. If I had the data and the evidence <laughs> to back that claim up, I would publish it. I would become famous for doing it. Like it would be really good. It'd be really important. The data for this stuff doesn't exist at all. And so it really becomes this sort of pure flight of fancy. And flights of fancy are fun. And so I think that's sort of, you know, sort of twists together all of these issues. You, you bring up sort of this intersection of aliens and comic books and belief. And, you know, there's there's uh, some really interesting work that's been done around sort of the intersection of many of those things. Uh, Carl Jung wrote a book uh, that, uh, you know, tackled the idea of aliens and belief in aliens. More recently, uh, Jeffrey Kripal has, has dealt quite a bit with, you know, the, the idea of belief in aliens and, and the possibilities of aliens. Kripal, of course, uh, did uh, the, the book Mutants and Mystics uh, that also tackles comic books. Can you speak to, you know, this this intersection of, of aliens in comic books and belief that is is being taken seriously by very smart people in the academic yeah, world? Uh, so, so much of this is that, you know, Kripal's work is interesting and uh, very dense. I always find Kripal a little bit dense to, to dig through. And the reality is, I think, you know, he's very interested in coincidences, I would say, and I will never forget reading his book, Authors of the Impossible, uh, as, a, as one he published right before Mutants and Mystics. Uh, and he was, you know, it's a book that, in essence, it's you know, a series of biographies of different paranormal authors. And um, I, I used it in a class that I taught about paranormal belief. And we, I was reading it with a group of students. And it's sort of like he, I feel like you kind of watched him transform as he was writing this book where he went at the beginning, like, I'm a religious studies professor and I'm studying this stuff because it's, you know, it's interesting and it's relevant. And by the time you get to the end of the book, I'm like, I, I 
think you're on the other team now. Like, I think you know, you're actually you're fully believing all the things you're writing about. And it seems that some of his work has continued to trend in that direction. And it's, I think, you know, it's for him, as I said, it's about coincidence. And there's all of this that, you know, he's the more often we see the same imagery, the same ideas, the same claims ripple, but from one source to another. For, for Kripal, it seems like there's, there's more reality to it. There's more, it sort of exists in the zeitgeist. And, you know, it, it's, I come at this from you know, the archaeological perspective. I, I'm an archaeologist. I got interested in ancient aliens in particular from a perspective of how do we talk about how it's not real. And so I, I when I look at the same comic books he does, I, it sort of says different things to me, which I think is the beauty of these kind of images too, right? As I've just finished working on an article that will hopefully come out the next year about the presence of uh, presence of pseudo-archaeological claims in comic books in general, but a lot of it definitely focuses on ancient aliens. And I think the thing that struck me is even I was surprised. Like I started working, I did get a conference paper on this a few years ago, and I started working on it. And I, I knew a handful of examples of ancient alien references in comic books that predated 1968. Uh, which is a really important date in the history of ancient alien claims, because that is when Eric von Donneken's book, Chariots of the Gods, was published. And if people aren't familiar, like this is the it's the ancient alien book that popularized the idea. It sold millions of copies. It was translated into, I think, like 30 different languages. It helped to inspire the, the TV show In Search Of. It is ultimately, uh, you know, Eric von Donneken is an executive producer for the History Channel show uh, In the Present. And like they, it would, the modern ancient aliens show was founded based on his book. I, I knew a couple of ancient aliens references that predated his book in comic books. I'm like that's kind of funny where it's like, wow, you know, yes, there's aliens coming down to earth in ancient Egypt or whatnot. It's like, that's, that's weird. And then I, I started digging and coming up with more and more examples. And, and, you know, in essence, what I found is that there were so many of these things that before 68, by the early 60s, there are actual tropes that have developed in fictional stories about ancient alien contact. Like By the early 60s, every time a comic book or a pulp fiction or a science fiction author writes about this stuff, the aliens are gods. Our ancestors have to assume that they must have been gods, and that's the only explanation. And you know, that all science, advanced technology, that these spacecraft and the ray guns or whatever they have, that our primitive ancestors assume that they must have been uh, magic. All of that stuff is in fiction, not once, not twice, but repeatedly to the point of becoming a trope years before Eric von Donneken even published Chariots of the Gods. And so it's, it's one of these funny things, and you can go both ways. As I would not argue, and I don't argue, that I don't think Eric von Donneken was copying comic books. Like, I don't think it was, you know, maybe they're in the back of his head somewhere, maybe, but I don't think that's necessarily even true. I think he's tapped into sort of the same cultural imagination. He's decided it's real. The comic book authors are starting to uh, just exploit it for their own fun stories. And I think, you know, for Kripal, I think that's something that that's a resonance, that's a coincidence that he would find compelling from sort of his perspective. To me, it, it's just one more sort of chink in the, the wall of like, why are we supposed to take this as real when all of a sudden when we have like 20 odd authors over here using it in their science fiction stories and then one guy comes out and says like, no, it's real. It really makes me sort of like scratch my head. And it's like, well, why does this stuff 
you know, what, what is it about this stuff? And clearly, you know, there's lots of examples of this in Pulp Fiction and in the comic books as well, that um, a lot of the fictional authors are clearly playing with the idea. Maybe it's real, maybe it's not. And, and that's fun to do in fiction. That's a lot of fun to do in fiction. And it engages your audience in a very real way that you want to engage them. But it does build doubt in people's minds. In the long term, years later, when you're like, I don't remember where I read this or where I heard it, but yeah, I think wasn't there some kind of carving from Egypt that had something funny on it that looked alien-like or spaceship-like? And I think you know, for a lot of people, you just don't quite remember where you got it from years down the line. Yeah, I think it's like myth and history kind of that they all start to blur and you're like, was it Indiana Jones or was it like actually in a book? Yeah. <laughs> I know I've yeah. done that. Well, I mean, history is doing that now, but in your opinion, what can they do to rectify the damage that they've done with ancient aliens? Or or do you even think it can be fixed? You know, and they're 14 seasons in at this point. You know, if we're talking about History Channel and Ancient Aliens, you know, and they're, and as, as you noted, Tori, they're, they're, it's not just a TV show anymore. They have conventions that are, you know, uh, or sort of styled around Comic-Con style conventions where people dress up and wait in line. And I think you know, history is too deep in. Like they, they, they can't, you know, I don't know what the producers at history believe. Do they just see this as a cash cow? Do they, you know, do they actually believe themselves? I don't know. And I'm not sure it matters because they are so deep in. I don't think that they can, can let go. I mean, they, they would have to, you know, and it's, what we need to do and what I try to do in my work and my writing and talking to folks like you is to say, like, you know, plenty of my colleagues in the past have debunked these claims. Ancient Alien, like Eric Von Donneken's books were debunked pretty much as soon as they came out. People started writing articles in their own books about what was wrong with what he was claiming. And yet, you know, I think it's something I haven't said that I like to repeat a lot um, to make sure the audience knows how serious this is. In a 2018 survey, uh, 41% of Americans said that they agree or strongly agree that ancient alien contact really happened. This isn't some small fringe thing. And that number has been growing uh, over multiple years of that survey, too. Uh, this is something that almost for, like 41%, like 41% of Americans to say that, that my profession is lying to them. And this is an issue where it's like debunking is easy. We can talk you know, individual examples. What does Von Donneken claim? What does the TV show claim? It's really easy and it, to pick apart those individual examples. Uh, and if people haven't checked out Jason Colavito's website, Jason Colavito is an incredibly dedicated scholar who has done that hard work and picked apart their individual examples and said, look, these individual examples are totally bunk. And yet we're still here. 41%. This concept has been debunked for 50 years ongoing, and we're here with 41% of people believing. I don't think we have an information problem. I think we have a culture problem. It's And so, you know, History Channel could, could air a retraction, and I would love it if they aired a retraction. But, I, you know, I think we'd pretty much get a whole, you know, a whole new genre of truthers coming out at right away where it'd be like, oh, no, History Channel was forced to retract because of the corporate entities of big archaeology in some way. Like, I think we need to talk about this stuff openly. We need to talk about the cultural influences behind it, not just the information behind it, what's wrong with the archaeology, but that, that, yeah, that this was in comic books for decades. It was in Pulp Fiction before that. All of this is a very old idea. In fact, the, the oldest reference I know so far 
and, I, and there could be older ones, but like that, the idea that aliens built the pyramids of Egypt in particular, the oldest uh, example that I know of that comes from the 1890s uh, by, uh, from a fictional author. Uh, and I'm going to get his name wrong. I think it's Garrett Service. I'm, I'm going to get his name wrong. But he actually is someone who plagiarized H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, uh, basically wrote his own version of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, and then decided to write a sequel to War of the Worlds after that uh, called Edison's Conquest of Mars. Uh, and uh, in this, the humans go to Mars and they take the fight to the Martians. And when they're there, they encounter this colony of humans on Mars who tell this story that their ancestors had been kidnapped from Earth thousands of years beforehand uh, when the Martians had come to Earth to build the pyramids and the Sphinx. It's like, this is a hundred-year-old idea, and the oldest example, I, there, there's some older stuff that I can point to that's sort of in the esoterical, spiritual uh record but it's a little vaguer and it doesn't you know have these specific kind of ideas that aliens built the pyramids or something it's like this is a hundred year old idea and it's interwaved between our fiction between our spiritual writings uh, and then all of these people who crop up every once in a while and like hey maybe it's actually true at all at the same time and you know i think after a hundred years of that after a hundred years of people playing with this idea of ancient alien contact how, how would people on the street, if you don't obsess over this stuff like I do, how would you know? Like, one of, one of my favorite things that I came out with of, of working when I was researching the paper that I uh, just worked on, in Von Donneken's book in 68, he claims uh, that he's, he's a little bit vague about this, but he basically says, and he says it a couple of times in Chariots of the Gods, that the aliens had been on a spaceship alone for a pretty long time when they got to Earth, and those Earth women looked awfully nice. And he basically says that he says you know, that they picked the nicest-looking Earth women and mated with them, and this resulted in the modern human species that we have. Well, that was kind of rough for some of the, the, the people. Like so, when Jack Kirby wrote *The Eternals*, uh, which is one of the most influential ancient alien comic books. Uh, the Eternals, which they're about to make a movie of, um, was very explicitly an homage to Eric Von Däniken. Uh, and even though Kirby had actually been writing ancient alien stories before Von Däniken was, Kirby comes back and writes a new book in honor of Eric Von Däniken. But Kirby, with you know, he's got to deal with comic book authorities and whatnot. He can't have the aliens having sex with the humans. And so he actually changes that to sort of some genetic engineering. Uh, that the aliens create humans using genetic engineering. A couple years later, Eric Von Donneken actually decided to come out with his own comic books about ancient alien contact. And in those comic books, he decided as well to do uh, so this you know, genetic engineering rather than the mating with the dim proto-humans. Like, there's where these ideas come from, like, you know, the, the big idea of ancient alien contacts got a hundred year history. But when you talk about like, well, what was their interaction with humans? You, you have to like, it winds back and forth between the, the sources that claim to be just stories and fiction and the people who claim they're telling the truth and who's getting ideas from whom is really hard to tell sometimes. Well, Dr. Anderson, we are so honored that you would take time today to come and talk to us about your work and uh, about uh, pseudoscience and ancient aliens. I 
highly, highly recommend every one of our listeners uh, follow you on Twitter because I think you're constantly uh, bringing interesting ideas and interesting articles, and you're you're just a, a very worthy follow on Twitter. So uh, can can you tell us uh, how to track and follow your work? What are the best ways to do that? Yes, uh, no, I'm at DSA Archaeology on Twitter, uh, and I've got the same thing on Facebook and Instagram, although I'm more active on Twitter than the other places, but people can find me in any of those spaces, wherever they're most comfortable, absolutely. And uh, just thank you both so much for having me on. I really appreciate what you're doing. This kind of conversation of, of, about mythology and its modern impact is, is hugely important. Thank you so much, Dr. Anderson. Well, every time we have a guest... I feel like I learn so, so much. And David S. Anderson is somebody that I could sit and listen to talk for a long, long time because it's just his lens for archaeology and mythology and the world in general is just fascinating to me. And he's just so passionate about it. Yeah. That's what I love. Like I'm like, oh, yes, I could listen. I'm going to ride into war with you right now. Let's go. (laughs) Let's go. (laughs) Well, if we're going to ride into war, we need all the tools uh, that we can, you know, gather. And every episode, we also try and give you a tool that has been helpful to us in um, our journey. And it's it's a key. It's a skeleton key. So what uh, what sort of key did you bring for us today, Tori? I was going to say the Predator movies, but I'm going <laughs> to not say that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> I actually went back and read Octavia Butler's Dawn and just kind of revisited that in terms of, because like I said, I naturally want to dunk on ancient aliens. Yeah. For coming from a history background and as a black woman, I'm ready to fight. (laughs) But when I was rereading Dawn, I'm like, I get the attraction to this. Yeah. I get why this is on TV because this understanding of like, maybe there are these people who were just... In the Owen Kali and in Dawn, but aliens, ancient astronaut theories on ancient aliens. It's like maybe there are there these people who can who can better us, who can teach us new things. And revisiting Dawn and getting drawn back into that story, I had a lot more understanding of why ancient aliens is the force that it is. Yeah, because I understand it now. I understand of why this having these creatures or these people that we put on a pedestal that we put as giving us knowledge, there's something comforting in knowing that that, that's out there. Yeah. Plus just shout out to Octavia Octavia Butler. Butler. I mean, come on. So good. So good. And maybe one of the most underappreciated authors out there. I'm constantly shocked by how many people have never read an Octavia Butler book. If you have not, I can, I would completely agree with you on that one. Um, if you have yeah. not read any Octavia Butler, please, there are a number of that you could go with. Kindred, Parable of the Sour. I mean, there's so many. She is a force of nature and is a, a writer in a way that draws you in, builds worlds that you don't want to leave. Please, yeah. it, just pick up an Octavia Butler book and then thank yeah. me later. Yeah, right. <laughs> what about you? What's your key? Yeah, I also am going to recommend a a book, and I had trouble deciding between two, so I'm going to mention three books, actually. Okay. Uh, But the the first 
is a a book that I was turned on to in grad school by a thinker, a philosopher, a, a, a writer named Martin Buber. And Martin Buber wrote this book called I and Thou. And this book really gets at the philosophy of human beings as they discover otherness. And the, the whole idea is I recognize, you know, who I am and thou, and that complexity that we, you know, talked about earlier in this episode between the importance of recognizing someone is being different than us, and then the danger of, of the recognition of someone being different than us. Because othering of people goes so far beyond just even race or or gender identity or any of these, you know, easy to point to things. Sometimes we we just have trouble getting along with someone because of who they are and we end up othering, you know, that person. We we sometimes just have difficulty seeing that that the oneness of all things, you know, that uh, what we do affects affects the environment. It in, uh, affects others around us, and, and so this book really gets into that. I, I also, you know, would would be remiss if I didn't mention uh, Carl Jung's book *Flying Saucers: A Modern Myth of Things Seen in the Sky*, which is a deep dive into the psychology around um, aliens and and people that see aliens. However, I do not like to mention Carl Jung without also mentioning Fanny Brewster in her book, African Americans and Jungian Psychology, because, you know, Carl Jung can be problematic on uh, some issues of, of race and gender. And I, I want to, I want to, to offer you the, the, the helpful lens that Fanny Brewster uh, comes to this work with. So anytime I recommend Jung, I, I want to make sure and recommend Fanny Brewster as a uh, lens for look, taking a look at uh, Carl Jung. So that is my key for this week. I, I feel like as we wrap things up, Tori, we, we both have, you know, talked a lot about our 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 love for aliens. Some of us with a deeper love than others, like yourself. <laughs> but we, we've also talked about this idea, you know, of, of aliens being being sort of this this container for feelings about race with ancient aliens. But I, I also want to mention that is not the only time in pop culture that we've seen aliens be this container for racial feelings. There's been quite a bit of, of writing and work and thought done around uh, the series Alien, specifically the first movie, Alien, with uh, the Ridley Scott film. And often uh, that film has been examined as a exploration of ideas of race. And it's really interesting to watch uh, some of these films from certain eras in history about aliens and think about the racial connotations of those films. And especially when you look at what was going on in the world at the time, they're hard to ignore. You know, I've never thought about it that way. I was just always scared of alien. Yeah. But I, yeah, I can totally see that. Yeah. Looking yeah. back at it now. I don't have to go rewatch it with that lens. Yeah. Well, it's it's quite a different experience because you look at the type of fear that they have, you know, of of the alien. You even look at the conversations they have around, you know, what what the alien, you know, could do to them. 
It, and you look at, you know, even throughout culture, we, we don't hear the term as much anymore. But, you know, when I was growing up, it, it's, it's considered a pejorative term now. But, you know, you would hear the term illegal aliens mm-hmm. all the time. And, you know, it's it's a people didn't necessarily think it was derogatory back then. But, you know, we look back now and it's like, oh, my word, I can't believe, you know, we would call people by that term. But look at the connection. I mean, we you, know? you still hear that when people use the term like invasion. Yeah. Yeah. It's still being used. Yeah. There's all these interesting alien related uh, terms that go back to this this fear where ideas around aliens end up being these containers for uh, ideas about race and, and fears of all different types of otherness in other people. Yeah, it's interesting how I think it's interesting how aliens can be used for fear and aliens can be used for exaltation. Yeah. And it's, yeah. they're still both kind of held there. And they're even held there even in the show Ancient Aliens of like they had these horrible horrendous fights but they also taught us these amazing things. And it's almost like I don't want to use this this comparison but it's almost like when you see people being like, "Oh, these are illegal immigrants and these are the good immigrants. Like yeah, it's, yeah. it can be used seen in that way of the sense of other, of like, well, yeah. these are the good other and these are the bad other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that is, that is such, I think, a temptation for human beings mm-hmm. to bifurcate everything into good and bad, you know, and the world is very, is rarely that simple. Never. But what is simple is contacting us if you desire to. And Tori, how could someone simply get a hold of us if they uh, desired to do so? I mean, you can always shoot us an email at skeletonkeyspodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you vaguely resemble the predator, I am available. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you can also <laughs> follow us on the socials at Skeleton Keys Pod on Twitter and Instagram. You can give me a holler. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Tori Yates or. And you can uh, give me a holler at John, J-O-H-N-K-B-U-C-H-E-R on Twitter or simply telling a better story on Instagram. This was a lot of fun. I I don't know that we uh, could ever fully mine the depths of uh, of aliens, ancient aliens uh, in so race. Many episodes. But I know we'll we'll have to return to this subject at some point. But thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please go and give us a rating and a review on iTunes. It would mean so much to us. We really appreciate it. And we'll see you next time on Skeleton Keys. You've been listening to the Skeleton Keys podcast with Tori Yates Orr and John Booker a podcast that unlocks the mysteries of mythology and history in pop culture. Contact us at skeletonkeyspodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Skeleton Keys Pod. Skeleton Keys is a production of Sideshow Media Group.